Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Let's go in our Bibles together. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 7. Today we'll be in the final two verses of this chapter. This is the final the final message in this series, counterculture. This has thoroughly been challenging for me. I trust that it has been encouraging and challenging for you. All of these sermons are available online. If you missed a week or two or you just want to walk back through them and listen to them, you can find them through the podcast. You can find them on our webpage. You can find them on our YouTube channel. My Grace Church and My Grace Church is where you find those. We come down to the end of this sermon, and in today's text, we hear what Matthew records as the so what. How does this carry out? What is the response of the crowd? Now, we just came through the four warnings that Jesus proclaimed. The first warning that he gave is beware of the way that you choose, there are only two ways. And it matters for all eternity which gate through which you have entered. Because that's the way you're traveling and there is a destination. One is to life and one is to eternal death. The second warning that Jesus gave is beware of the false prophets. When we saw the two trees, that the false teachers, false prophets, they are everywhere trying to tell people, ah, you don't have to submit to Jesus. Let's change the message. Let's mute the message. Let's edit the message. Beware, warning two. Warning three, beware of a false conversion. People who say, Lord, Lord, yes, I I believe. Even the demons believe, James would write, and they shudder, they tremble. Is there any trembling in our lives? Beware of being a false follower, having a false profession of faith. And the fourth warning is beware of a faulty foundation. And we looked at this last Sunday on the Lord's Day and Jesus gave us the two builders. They're both building a religious life. Both look in appearances in a similar way. They both heard the words of Jesus, but it was how they responded that was drastically different, diametrically opposed to one another. So beware of building your life on anything other than the revelation of God and his word. So we looked at the way, there are four ways that people develop a worldview last week, and you will hear this, and I really don't want you to ever forget this, because when you're getting into discussions from here on out the rest of your life, you will hear out of your mouth come the words that you'll see, or you'll hear someone giving the answer or why they believe what they believe, and the four different Options are, well, I think this. Okay, that's, that's reason. And then there's the experience. Well, I, I feel that there's tradition. Well, you know, we've always done this or we've never done that. And then there's the fourth, and that's the revelation of God's word, and that is book, chapter, and verse. So when you're talking about anything, any family issue, any political issue, You'll hear people say, or you will hear, you'll catch yourself saying, well, you know what I think? Then let that, just send off a flare. 
watch out. You may be thinking rightly. You may be thinking wrongly. Well, you know, I feel that if you hear those key words come out of your mouth, then humbly continue on, knowing I could be 100% wrong here, which is very different than, well, the Bible says. And it's not a misinterpretation of Scripture. It's a clear interpretation of Scripture as interpreted, we interpret the Bible with the Bible. Not according to culture, but according to Scripture. So that's a foundation that if we're going to ever have a shot of building on the solid rock of Christ, then we have to go with the revelation, not our thoughts, feelings, or experiences. We'll never graduate from that screen, that truth, beloved. So I pray that that's etched in all of our minds. Let me ask you the question, when was the last time you were somewhere that you were left speechless? Maybe you uh, took in a landscape somewhere, you know, a scenic landscape, you know, over, over, you pulled off and you looked out, maybe you went to the Grand Canyon, maybe you saw something, a sunset, a rainbow, and you were just left speechless. You just couldn't even get words to describe what you were seeing. It just, what do we say? It took, it took my breath away. And it wasn't just because you have bad breath, you know. It, it just, it left you speechless. You didn't even know what to say. When was the last, maybe you heard someone sing and you didn't expect that voice to come out of them and you were, <gasps> maybe it was something tragic. Maybe you witnessed a mother giving her baby to a soldier over a barbed wire fence on a wall. And like me, you had no words to describe that. And you're left speechless. When was the last time we heard a sermon that left us speechless? In awe. Not because of the speaker, but perhaps because of the content the speaker gave in such a way that it penetrated your heart. And it was, a different, it was a different day for you. Your life changed because you heard that message. And you've heard all kinds of messages before, but this one was different. This one stuck with you. This one impacted you and changed your life. For some of you, you might think back to when you went to a youth camp or you were at a special service and that's where you came to know Christ. Is your life changed because you heard a word, maybe that you had heard before, but something was different about that day, that moment, and your life changed because of the word that you heard. Jesus concluded his sermon. It has left an enduring impression. You realize for 2,000 years, this sermon is still echoing across all nations. Just think about that. 2,000 years and Jesus finished this sermon, but it's still reverberating across all people groups and all continents and being translated into all language. This is no small thing. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why? What was so unique about this message and this messengers. The word of Christ, beloved, is enduring and it demands our obedience. Matthew chapter 7, we've just come through the four warnings. And verse 28, and when Jesus finished 
these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of God. So let's unpack this together this morning. The word of Christ, I believe, is enduring And it demands our obedience, and we're going to look at three reasons, three reasons why this morning. Number one, because the word of Christ is authentic. It's authentic. It's genuine. It's the real deal. This word from Jesus Christ is authentic. His manner was distinct. And the crowds heard him speak, and they recognized there's something different about this messenger. And when Jesus finished these sayings, Matthew carries on, the the crowds, all of those who were listening. Beloved, Jesus actually, he finished this sermon. It's a little challenging for me and difficult to finish this sermon. I can't say that I really want to finish this sermon. But Jesus, the master teacher, he stopped teaching. They had heard all that they needed to hear, and he ended. The end. We're not, we're not just going to keep explaining and keep teaching and keep explaining and stay on and on and longer and longer and longer. He gave the message, and he finished these sayings. Jesus was primarily speaking to his disciples, but Matthew includes that the crowds, aklos is the Greek word, there's this This massive, large public gathering of people, a collection of all kinds of people there, they had also gathered to hear what Jesus was teaching. And remember, the Sermon on the Mount is not how to be saved. It's not a to-do list, and if you do all this, then you'll be uh, reconciled to God. We can't. It it sinks us if this is a to-do list. We can't do this. This is a description of the upside-down life, the counter-cultural life of those who have come to faith in Christ, those who have been redeemed, those who have been saved. So with this, with this word, when Jesus finished these sayings, we've ended the first of five collections of teaching segments in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is signifying, close that section, we're moving on to something else. And he does this five times in his gospel. So the the book is divided by these five teaching segments. Matthew 7, 28, there's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. We began this study, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, in September last year, so almost a year ago. Like, wow, took Jesus how many hours? And we've been in this thing almost a year. Well... I can guarantee you I didn't cover everything that can possibly be covered in this sermon. I would have sat down gladly if Jesus would have said, let me me take this one. But he left me in place of him for this message. The standard for living in God's kingdom is perfection. So remember, contrary to what a lot of people commonly think, that this is a self-help message, a guru teaching, and do these things and your life will be better. No, 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 absolutely not. This is life described in the kingdom that crushes us. 
Jesus was the one greater promised by Moses. He came not to destroy the law and the prophets, but he said, I came to fulfill them. The Messiah King was on a mission. And so this Matthew 7, 28, this segment ends and a new section begins in Matthew's gospel. The next time we see this is in Matthew 11, 1. There's instructions given to the 12 as they're sent out. So you've been taught, teaching has happened, teaching, teaching. You know what? You need to put this into practice. And in Matthew 11, 1, there's a segment, enough, now go out and minister on my behalf. And they would come back. So Judas would be one of the ones casting out demons in his name, come back and eventually be one, Lord, Lord, look what we did in your name. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. The next time we see this, the third is in Matthew 13, 53, that when Jesus had finished these parables, and here's a conclusion to a section of key parables that Jesus taught, and then he visited Nazareth, his hometown. I'm just going to read a section from this because in Matthew 13, there's a shift that happens. Matthew 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Verse 54, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so he's in Nazareth, so that they were, imagine this, astonished. And so where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Okay, Jesus had brothers. Some of you were brought up in traditions that said Mary never had any other children and and she never entered into normal marital relationships. That's not scriptural. It's a lie. He had brothers. They knew him. They didn't know where he got the authority. They didn't know where he he came up with these skills. They knew he was good with working with wood and carpentry. They're saying, we thought we knew this guy. We don't know him like we thought we knew him. Who is he again? That's the question for us. Who is this Jesus? Verse 56, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there. Why? (sighs) Not listening to him. I don't believe him. Not listening to him. I'm not, I know him. I'm not bowing my life before him. Matthew 19, 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So there's a segment where he's moving away from Galilean ministry and his ministry is shifting and he's making his way toward the cross. And the fifth segment is in Matthew 24, 25 and 26 verse one with the betrayal and the crucifixion just around the corner. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Matthew has laid out his gospel and it's organized around Jesus' teaching. Who is this Jesus? And Matthew His point to the Hebrew people is, he's the king we were waiting on. Did you hear him speak? Did you hear his messages? 
They're all recorded, they're written down, assembled, put together in Matthew's gospel so that the Jewish people, the Hebrew people could look and compare it with the Old Testament and say, is he who he claimed to be? And if he is, what are his claims on my life? Now we go back to Matthew 7 and verse 28, but we're reminded of this this ending in verse 27, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. That was the end of his message. He didn't end with, now five tips to make you smile as you leave. And here's the joke for the day. And here's the thing. It's not like like our modern day sitcoms that everything resolves in 30 minutes. This is much more like life. This is a sobering ending. This is not a feel-good message. This is not a message where Jesus is absolutely committed to, I need more people following me, whether they're fully committed or not. No. This message is different. This message comes with authority, and all of the people are left. We would call this a mic drop. That probably won't have, you know, if this sermon's listened to 20 years from now, mic drop, what does that mean? But we kind of understand when somebody wants to make a point, but that's not really fair because Jesus didn't possess the, the arrogance that often goes with the mic drop. He was filled with compassion. He was filled with love. He ends his sermon. He said everything that needed to be said in that moment, in that segment, he finished his sermon. But he also fulfilled his sermon. If anyone wanted to know, what does it actually look like to do all that he said? In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what does that look like? Then anyone in the crowd would just simply nudge them and point to Jesus. It's him. Look at him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it look like to be poor in spirit? Hey, hey. Jesus. Oh, he fulfilled this sermon. If anyone wanted to know what does it look like to live a perfect and God-pleasing life, then where do you need to look? To Jesus. Look no further than Jesus. He was the real deal. His men traveled with him. They knew him to be 100% who he claimed to be, the Son of God and the Son of Man. He was what we long for in our relationships and in our leaders, authentic. Don't we long for that? Don't we get bothered when someone who's in a leadership position comes out to be, um, they're not telling the truth. They either don't know the truth or they're not telling the truth. Something's wrong. All of Jesus' men knew he is who he claims to be. He's the real deal. I quote this from C.S. Lewis every now and then. I don't want us to forget this quote. It it comes from the book Mere Christianity. And C.S. Lewis says this so beautifully. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus, 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. Okay, there's a lot of people, universities, they'll, they'll study the Sermon on the Mount through this lens, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Muslims have this view. Mormons have this view. Jehovah's Witnesses have this view. Many people in Judaism have this view. And C.S. Lewis says that is the one thing we must not say. He continues, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg. I'm a poached egg. Just crazy. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he is a madman or something worse. I love this closing paragraph. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You can't have it both ways. He is our righteousness, loved ones. He fulfilled this sermon. He is our example. His children hear him and they follow him. That's what he said about his sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They obey me. Not because we have to, but because we want to, because we love him, because we've been loved by him. So we desire authenticity. We who belong to him, we want hypocrisy to be exposed, even in our own lives, so that we can deal with it while there's time. Sadly, hardly a week goes by without some leader, spiritual leader, politician, a business leader being exposed as a fraud where people had this understanding of their public persona. We thought they were great. We thought they were a good talk show host. We thought they were this. We thought they were that. And then we started hearing the stories that we didn't believe at first, but now the evidence comes out and they are not the person that we thought they were. Oh, this is just all the time happening. Well, that was never said about Jesus. He's authentic. His manner was distinct. There was something drastically different about him. And the gospel that he came and he delivered, it's the key to our first distinctive, which is Christ-centered preaching. It's not self-help. It's we have no help other than Christ. We cannot help ourselves. We are in need of redemption. We are in need of rescue. The servant king came and he lived and he died to save his people from sin. Beloved, he was born to die. His plan wasn't ruined by the cross. His plan was realized in the cross. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, that's where he was revealed to be everything he claimed to be. Not just a man. 100% man, 100% God. Uh, can you explain that for me, wise? No. I can just tell you it's the truth. And he conquered death, 
hell, and the grave. The check cleared. And when he walked out of that grave, because I've repented of my sin, and if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ alone, you walked out of the grave. I walked out of the grave. The grave won't keep us. What, is what does death become for a believer, no matter what country you live in? An usher into the presence of God. That's it. Teeth are gone. Fangs are gone. Sting is gone because of Jesus. Amen? I'm not by myself here, am I? I didn't lose you here, did I? All right. The word of Christ is enduring, demands our obedience because it's authentic, Jesus' manner was distinct. Second reason is because his word is astounding. It's astounding. His word is awesome. His word is amazing. His message was divine, loved ones. It's not just who he was. It was his message. It was what he proclaimed. It's what he taught. It's what he said. The crowds, verse 28, were astonished at his teaching his doctrine. Some were curious. There were many who were intrigued by Jesus, by what he had to say, by his teaching, by his doctrine. And Matthew is showing us that the crowds left with an ongoing wonder as they traveled home. They left with amazement. They left saying, wasn't that amazing? That was something else. I don't even know what to say about that. They left in wonder. They left in amazement. Well, this happened on quite a few occasions in Jesus' three years of ministry. John, four, or John 7 and verse 46, the off officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Remember they were sent to arrest Jesus? Like, where is he? You should have heard his teaching. Oh, are you guys his followers too? No, but uh, we've heard you teach. He's not like him. He teaches. It's amazing. Matthew 13, 54, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get wisdom, this wisdom and these mighty works? This is astonishing. This takes your breath away. This takes your words away. Mark 1, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Mark 6, 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Who is Jesus? That's still the right question, loved ones. And in Luke 4 and verse 32, and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. They were shocked. They were stunned. They were struck in the mind, is this word. They were curious about it. They were intrigued. They were, this, the, the, the original word is ekpleso. It means to be overwhelmed. It means to be dumbfounded. Like, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he took on the religious establishment like that. Later, he made a whip and drove them out of his father's house. Who is this guy? Astounded, overwhelmed, struck in the mind. Many gave lip service to Jesus. 
They applauded his message, but they left without applying his message. That's a real problem that we're probably all guilty of, including me. Having preached messages, James 3 says, beware of those who would teach. You're held to a higher standard. I wish I could tell you I've put into practice everything I've taught. I want to. I long to. But Jesus did. Many gave lip service. Oh, that was an amazing message. I've had people say that after funerals, after services, and then they never darken the door again. Well, that was an amazing message. And they leave unchanged. That is no help. A message is never given for the mere applause. It's given that we would apply it to our lives. And so many people left the mountain that day intrigued by Jesus' message, curious about his message, but unchanged by his message. And that is tragedy the worst tragedy. Some were convicted. Some were curious. Oh, that's amazing. That's a message. I'm going I'm to get that tape. What's a tape, Dad? Oh, they haven't made it yet. Some were convicted. They left the mountain irritated. They left the mountain insulted. I can't believe he said that. And sadly, probably most of them left unchanged. This describes Judas Iscariot. I don't know what to make of that message. I don't know what he's asking me to do. Judas was right there and he missed out on the opportunity to surrender his life to Jesus Christ, the King. Doesn't this happen when you and I share the gospel with people? Some people are curious. Oh, that's so interesting. Some people are convicted. Oh, I think what you're saying is right. But sometimes they're irritated. I don't like your message and people get upset with us, and you think, maybe I should have said the message in a better way. Maybe I, maybe I, didn't, I wasn't clear enough. Maybe I got in the way. Maybe I was too you know, passionate about it. Maybe I was too intense about it. Maybe I wasn't intense enough. Have you walked through these things with a coworker, with a family member, and easily we can devolve into, I should have, I, I. Did you give the message? Did you speak the truth in love? Jesus you, you and I are not going to be better than him. And some people left, well, that was an amazing message. That was something else. And some people, I can't believe he said that. <sighs> They're so convicted. That rock thrown into the pack, and it struck them. Yeah. And they leave angry with Jesus. But loved ones, some were captivated. Some left and they were genuine followers or they became genuine followers, disciples of Jesus. Some would become fully invested into Jesus and this message. Although the number was relatively few that would come to know, love, and truly follow Jesus for the rest of their lives, remember that wasn't what Jesus was setting out to do is, I just need everybody to follow me. I just need more crowds. No. If a church ever sets out to just simply have more people, they've lost the plot at the very beginning, at the outset. Why is it that we would move from this location to 30 Mile and Forest, loved ones? Have you thought through that? Why does our pastor not just want to coast the rest of his life with the building that's paid for? Do you understand how attractive that would be to just coast? You guys take very good, 
care of me and my family. I'm very blessed. You love and support and pray for and walk through good times and bad times. Why don't we just coast instead of set forth a call to sacrifice? It's not to get more people. It is that God might through us be exposed to serve more people that through us we can be a blessing to more people. There's always, if you go into marriage thinking, how can my spouse serve me? You're gonna get let down. If you enter into marriage saying, how can I be a blessing and serve my spouse? You have an open-ended, never done job description, job security for the rest of your days. As the people of God, we believe that set in the hearts of those who have come before us almost 30 years ago that desired to have a place to be exposed to thousands upon thousands of people that if they were to die today, they don't know Christ. And we are a church by God's grace that will hold to, we won't sacrifice the gospel to reach more people but that we will sacrifice everything that God would use us to be a blessing through the gospel because people need the gospel, amen? That's why, that's why. So we believe it a worthy investment. Some are captivated by this message. John Calvin, he says it this way. He says, the meaning therefore is that where he had given the people on all sides a taste of his doctrine, all were seized with astonishment because of a strange, indescribable, and unwonted majesty drew to him the minds of men. Did you catch that last part? An unwonted majesty drew to him the minds of men. There were some in the crowd that they couldn't get the message out of their mind. They couldn't get the man out of their mind. They were drawn to him inexplicably. They were convicted and they came to faith in Christ. He is sovereign in our salvation. All many of the hearers, they would one day endure persecution and martyrdom for following Christ, but it would be worth it all. You remember that hymn? It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. They would believe that and they would die laying their lives down for this. So some were curious, some were convicted, but some were captivated. Do you realize that describes this audience even today? Some people are curious, somebody invited you, here you are. Some people are convicted and that can lead one or two ways you're convicted, humbled, and you come to faith in Christ or you're angry and irritated and can't wait to get out from uh, under the sound of the message as fast as you possibly can to the next thing. Turn with me in Acts chapter 17. Uh, We get a description here. Paul is in Athens. He goes out on Mars Hill. He preaches a message, and we see Luke record the response. Acts 17. In verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You're spiritual. Is that good enough? No. Verse 23, For I, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, 
What therefore you worship is as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among, also, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. I read that entire account because we hear the message and we hear his proclamation that this is a message that is over all ethnicities. We're all related. We all come from Adam. We're united in Adam. He is our federal head. We inherit the sin nature. And so Paul goes all the way back to creation, preaching in this secular pagan environment, and he points them to Jesus. And the question from that crowd and the question from any crowd since is, why would I listen to Jesus? Why are you telling me I should submit my life to Jesus? And Paul says, here's why. Because he will judge the living and the dead. Judgment day is coming. And how do we know this to be true? Because he is resurrected. And they were like, check please. Resurrection? Are you kidding me? Some mocked. Some procrastinated. Oh, that's interesting. That's curious. And some believed. And whenever we proclaim the gospel, some people will mock, some people will laugh at you, some people will disbelieve and say, get out of here. I'm not listening to you. Some people will say, that's really interesting. We'll debate about this another time. I'll learn some more about this another time. Don't give up on them. Some people will believe. And God will open their spiritually blind eyes and they will come to faith in Christ. So let's be faithful in sharing the gospel, loved ones. His message was authentic, astounding, and lastly, his message was authoritative. Jesus' majesty was displayed. Jesus was, verse 29 there, he was unmistakably different. Something was radically different about Jesus. And Matthew records, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Everybody was left with, we've heard a lot of teaching in our religious upbringing, schools, synagogues, temple. 
We've never heard anybody teach like this. Something drastically different. We need to answer four questions that helps us get to Jesus' authority, his majesty. Who is this Jesus? That'd be the first question. Well, who is this preacher? That's what they would have asked. Who is this guy? The answer? Well, he, Jesus, possesses all authority. It's all his. I thought there was something different about him. His authority is not delegated. His authority is intrinsic. He was the one on whom the world was waiting. Jesus was unique. He left the crowds in awe, speechless. I can't believe he said that. And then when chapter 8 unfolds, they go down the mountain, and then Jesus demonstrates his authority over demons, over sickness, over nature. So he didn't just say, I have all authority. He backed it up with his actions, and they knew Based on what I'm hearing and what he's doing, he is different. He has authority. Another question we should ask, well, how exactly did he preach? Jesus preached with all authority. So he possesses all authority. It's all his. That's where the gospel of Matthew ends. All authority on heaven and earth is given to me. And then he preached with all authority. He didn't hem-haw. He wasn't just guessing. He wasn't just putting things out there for you to consider, and if it works for you, try it. He wasn't giving a 90-day satisfaction guaranteed. If it doesn't work out, come back, you can have your discipleship back. He was saying this is going to cost you everything. If you don't lay down your life, you can't be my disciple. He preached with all authority, all authority. But listen, he was winsome. Kids loved him. Kids loved him. So he wasn't the angry guy. Seen a few of those on YouTube and Twitter, right? The angry preachers. Just frothing, mad, running around all fuming. That's not Jesus. He wasn't a, I lost my temper. It's not Jesus. He wasn't unkind. He wasn't insulting. He didn't insult Herod. He knew when to be gentle and he knew when to be stern. He refused to submit his person and work to the cultural problems of his day. Think about this in the day we live, loved ones. Jesus didn't submit his entire messianic ministry to a political agenda. If we can just get Rome out of our way, if we can just get a better leader, you know, if we can just get Herod out of the way and a really righteous leader, he didn't submit his mission to that. He had no trouble saying, you tell Herod that fox where I'm at. I'll be here today, I'll be there tomorrow, and I'll be over there the next day. If he wants to come find me, you better bring it because I made him and he'll stand before me when he dies. I added that part just because it's true. Jesus didn't say that. He didn't submit his messianic misery uh, ministry to a social agenda. People say that today. You think Jesus is great? Then why didn't he overturn slavery in the Roman Empire, of which they believe a, th a third of the Roman Empire, maybe more, in slaves, slavery? 
So is, is Jesus somehow unrighteous because he didn't take on that issue of the day? What about the racial division between Jews and Gentiles? Why didn't Jesus spend more time on that? Oh, he would deal with it by laying down his life. It's the only way you deal with it. It's through the gospel. He didn't submit his messianic ministry to relational problems between spouses, co-workers, family members. The guy dividing up his inheritance, upset that his brother wouldn't give him his share. Jesus didn't submit his messianic ministry to here and gone issues of the day. He came to proclaim the gospel. He came to live a life that we could never live, die the death that we deserve to die, was buried, rose again, and then he put his disciples on mission, and we're coming to that. His mission, not our mission, not our agenda. We were separated from God, and this is our greatest problem. Once this need is met, now you know how to deal with political issues. Now you know how to deal with social issues. Now you know how to deal with racial issues. Now you know how to deal with cultural issues. Once you've been reconciled to God, now you have the basis of working out parenting and your marriage and how you function and keep your integrity on your job. He was winsome. He was unapologetic. He's, he absolutely refused to lie. He refused to alter his message. He refused to reduce his demands. He refused to appease the critics or compromise with his enemies because he's the truth, he's the life, and he is the only way. Amen? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, through me. There's only one way, but there is a way. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, Jesus spoke royally. The truth itself was its own argument and demonstration. He taught prophetically as one inspired from above. Men felt that he spoke after the manner of one sent of God. It was no fault on their part to be astonished, but it was a grave crime to be astonished and nothing more. That's at the heart of what I'm getting to this morning. If we're just simply amazed by the message and not changed, it is indeed a grave crime. Well, what did he say? He preached with authority. He possesses all authority. He preached words of authority. It wasn't just his actions. It wasn't just the idea of Jesus. It was actually words. He was the word became flesh. And the words that he proclaimed actually possess authority because his word is divine. The crowds were used to their religious teachers. And what they would do is they would quote so-and-so, said that so-and-so said that so-and-so said. What? My mother's brother's cousin's friend's neighbor said, like, how far down the line are we here? But Jesus came and he said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, Wait, who are you? You're going to suffer, he said in the sermon, on my account. You're going to suffer for my name's sake. And you have to say, who is he? Who does he think he is? Who is this individual? I need to know who he is. His words, they're, div they're divine words. 
Michael Wilkins says it this way. He says, their authority, the religious teachers, their authority among the people came from their expertise in citing earlier authorities and in formulating new interpretations. But ironically, their practices had muted the authority of the Old Testament. Why? Because they added so many traditions and legal requirements that the power of Scripture was defeated. Thus, they could not speak with authority for they had muted the only source of authority. Moses said, God will raise up for you one like me. Listen to him. And Jesus came. No, because so-and-so said that so-and-so said that so-and-so said that we don't have to do that and we have to do all these other things. But Jesus is saying, but I say to you. Loved ones, his word is divine and his word is final He preached words of authority. There's no court of appeals. Listen to what Jesus claimed about the authority. John 12, verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Well, who who will judge us? The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Do you hear? I and the Father are one. I don't do anything of my own. We're one, Father, Son, Spirit, the Godhead. Well, then what happened to this message? Jesus possesses all authority. He preached with all authority. He didn't apologize. He preached words of authority, so words matter. That seems to be a concept that's almost lost in the day we live live in. Well, you don't know the context. What context does that work? What context does that fit? So that's what they say about the Quran. You don't know the context. What is the context? Scripture gives context. He promised his power and his presence to his disciples. They would proclaim his message, and this message is still proclaimed to all the world. The disciples make disciples who make disciples. What is discipleship? What's going on here? It's helping someone else to follow Christ. Is that happening in a regular way in your life? that you're seeking out someone to help you grow in Christ and you're helping someone else to grow in Christ, to follow Christ. The end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. The resurrection has occurred and Jesus is about to depart. And this is what happened to his message. Matthew 28, verse 18 you hear this now after we've gone through all the five segments. We finished this first, this first teaching segment. And you listen to what Jesus says in verse 18 of Matthew 28. We're familiar with it. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you, how often? Always, to the end of the age. Amen.
This is the commission. This is our mission as a church. Go make disciples. Who make disciples? Who make disciples? Where? All peoples. Go everywhere. So we're concerned about the people of India and Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran and North Korea and South Korea and just go nation by nation by nation. We're concerned with the people who live in our community and our state and our country. So we don't forget this. We're to be on mission. And they went on mission. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles, they carried this out, filled by the Spirit of God, and they, they suffered persecution. They were arrested. They were beaten. But listen to what happened in Acts 4 and uh, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, that's what they thought about Jesus, they were, what's the word? Astonished. You think? I thought we killed this guy. And these followers that scattered and denied and just fled they're back and they're filled with power that reminds us of Jesus. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Does anyone say that of you and me? There's something different about them. If you want to know Jesus, go to him, go to her. Well, what about us today? That's, that's great. That's what Jesus left. That's what the apostles did. Here we are 2,000 years later. What about us? What about us? What about you? What about me? We've heard the sermon. Have we understood the message? Do we understand what Jesus was saying? Well, then what are we going to do? How are we going to obey for the rest of our lives? Sinclair Ferguson, he says it this way. He says, Jesus did not preach this sermon in order to be admired for his homiletical skills. He preached this sermon to produce obedience. He preached it so that the authority people recognized in his preaching might be realized in their lives. The authority recognized, realized in your life and in my life. So by way of summary, comes on the screen. Jesus' message was authentic. His message was astounding. His message was authoritative. His majesty was displayed. So then what about you and what about me? The question for us is not, how did the people respond? Don't you want to know that at the end of Jonah? Like, what happened? You know, what happened to the guy? The issue for you and for me isn't about what happened to Jonah. It's what about you and what about me? The issue for us isn't what happened to the people that walked down from the mountain and how did they respond and what about... It's how have we heard, understood, how will we obey this message? I trust that this does not pass any person by. As we ask this question, if you've never come to faith in Christ, I'm inviting you again today. That's where you begin. Don't just hear and admire the message. I hope someone else heard that. Embrace the message. Receive the gospel. Let me ask these questions that we can talk over this afternoon. Where am I amazed at this message, but perhaps not obedient? Where am I amazed at this message, but I haven't yet submitted to Jesus?
and been obedient. Can I ask you the question? Have you personally recognized and confessed the authority of Jesus over you? Oh, I've said, Lord, Lord. I prayed the prayer. I joined the church. I take communion. I serve. Have you really heard the word of Jesus? Can you truly say he's my king and I live to honor him? Perfectly? None of us. But is that your heart? Have you followed him? Have you publicly let the world know you belong to him? There's steps of obedience that by their fruits you will know them, Jesus said. So we close this sermon like we close almost every other sermon. What is your next step? What does it look like for you, for me to obey? What is that next step? Can we help you take that step? Can we pray with you today? Reach out to us online. We'll be available afterwards. Russ will be uh, coming in just a little bit, receiving the offering. If you want someone to pray with you, I'll be in the fellowship hall. Russ will be right here. Can we help you take the next step? That's what we want to do. Take that next step of obedience. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for loving us first and for laying down your life for sinners. So I pray, Lord, as this message comes to a close, wrapping up this entire series, that this message will not fall on deaf ears, but this message will fall on good soil hearers, and that fruit will come from this message, Father. Oh, we need you, and we trust you, and we love you, and I pray, God, that you will use us as your hands and your feet to be a blessing to those around us. Father, I pray for the one who has not trusted you that today would be the day of salvation. I pray, pray for those who have come to faith, but they need to take that next step to follow you in baptism or perhaps to become and join and plug into the family of God, carrying out this mission to the world. Father, you know what we need to do, so may we be sensitive to your word and sensitive to your spirit. And may we obey today and always. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.